Hello, welcome back. This is the fifth recording I'm doing. I'd just like to mention in advance that it would be best if you've just seen this one. You might go back and listen to the four before it. I'm really building a story and ideas based upon each of these podcasts. So I do recommend you start off at the first podcast and work your way back to this one, which is number five. What we're looking at today is that we're going to just summarize a little bit of what we talked about in our last podcast, Genesis, the first story. And we went through that first story, which had to make certain major points. One of the major points is there's only one God. This, this God is neither male nor female. This point, second point that was made in that uh, story is that everything God made is good. All matter is good. Everything in the world is good. Every human is good. And humans are in the image and likeness of God, meaning that they have the power to create. They have the power to create life, to create new things, and that their job is to take care of this good world that God has made. They have a responsibility to take care of all the fish and the streams and the oceans and the animals that have been created. And we need to keep our ideas straight about that, that we have to make sure we do take care of all these things. Now, you might say, where did this story come from, this first story of creation? As I mentioned in the last episode, it was written somewhere between 587 and 539 BC. But what was the source of this story? Did it get made up out of nothing? No. There was a story which we have discovered, all right, through ancient archaeological digs called the Enuma Elish Epic, E-N-U-M-A Elish, E-L-I-S, Epic. We know that it was written somewhere around 1700 B.C. So it's much older than the uh, story in Genesis, that first story. And what is in the Enuma Elish Epic is a description of the way these people viewed how creation happened. Again, it's what we call a myth. A myth is something, is an attempt to explain those things which are beyond the understanding of, more powerful than, out of the reach of humans, in terms humans can grasp and put into a language that is available to them. So a myth is trying to explain something that is almost unexplainable, all right? Even in 1700 BC, people wondered, how did this world come about? In the year 2020, we say, a lot of us say, the Earth came about via the Big Bang Theory. It, it's not absolutely scientifically proven, but with, given the best knowledge we have, best understanding we have, the best words we have, it's a way of explaining how this universe, this world began. Well, back in 1700 BC, the people who wrote the Enuma Elish epic, they wanted to explain how the world came about. And it starts off a little bit like this. When on a high the heavens had not named, firm ground below had not been called by a name, nothing by primordial apsu, 
their begetter, and Mamu Timamet, she bore them all. The waters commingled in a single body. So in this story of the Enuma Elishepik, we're going to meet two main characters. Tiamat, the mother of everything, and Apsu, the father of everything. So in the beginning of the Enuma Elishepik, we meet uh, Tiamat and Apsu. Tiamat is the goddess, and she is has uh, salt water. She's made of salt water. The god, Apsu, is male, and he is fresh water. Salt water is often uh, arranged with the woman because when a woman is having a baby, when her water breaks, that's salt water, that life comes out of salt water. So that is where the Enuma Elish epic begins. It also has a number of ideas that are very similar to Genesis the darkness and the waters of chaos, and it uses the same order of creation. Light comes from the gods, there's creation of a dome in the sky, there's dry land, there's the creation of the moon and the stars, and they're fixed on the dome, there's creation of humans, and then there's the story about the gods resting and having a big party. But a few interesting things in it. Man is created to be the servers of the gods. The reason humans are around are to do what the gods want them to do, what they order man and woman to do. We realize the beauty of what creation is about and its different theology that is in the Genesis story. This brings us now to the second story of creation. All right? which begins roughly in chapter 2, verse 4b. It sort of begins right in the middle of the, of the verse here. Again, it's a Gutenberger's chapters and verses, not the author's. Now, the second story we know from other scholars was written by what is called the Yahwist people. The Yahwist people were Jewish people that used the term for God, Yahweh. And this is part of the oldest parts of the Bible that are written. The Yahweh wrote between 975 and 935 BC. So when we're reading the most ancient story in the Hebrew scriptures, we're at 975 to 935 BC. Remember what I just said, the Enuma Elish epic was written somewhere around 1700 BC. So of course these people knew these stories. And these stories had an effect upon the writers, all right? They wanted to use that story, but they wanted to use it in a way that was going to tell us what they believed, what they thought was the most important things of the story. So we're going to take a look at the second story of creation. So, chapter 2, <coughs> verse 4, <coughs> excuse me begins the second story of creation. Now, this story was written by what are called the Yahweh's people, somewhere around 975 to 935 BC. This is one of the oldest sections of the Hebrew scriptures. It's one of the oldest stories in the book, but it still only dates from between 975 and 935. Was it written down? How long it might have been passed on orally? We're not really sure. 
But we're going to notice that in this second story of creation, there's some differences. The Yahweh's people are interested in explaining a few other things they believe in or believe about God and his relationship with humans. In the second story of creation, it's an interesting to note that in chapter 2, verse 4, it begins that man is created first, that God takes earth, and from earth, man is created. From stardust, man becomes a human being. How does he become a human being? When God breathes into him, Ruah, R-U-A-H. Again, that same idea of the spirit of God that was in the first story of creation, the idea of the Holy Spirit we see later on, this idea of a Ruah, <coughs> a breath <coughs> that is being sent into man is part of this idea. And we're going to explain that a little earlier on when we come to the New Testament. So Ruah, the breath of God, is what gives man his life, all right? Dirt and the breath of God. They weren't really into this body-soul decision right in the beginning. It's more a Greek idea. In the beginning, though, they do think that somehow God had to intervene in this being we call man. And what does God do? He places man in this gorgeous place, in Eden. Eden, we're told in the story, has four rivers. Well, two of the rivers, we have no idea where they are, but the Tigris and the Euphrates, we know, are basically in Iraq, all right? And this would be, of course, a, a normal idea that man came from the Tigris, near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, where many people believed up till now is where life might have begun. And God creates this beautiful place to put man into. And man gets to name all of the animals. Naming the animals means you have power over them. Don't you get to name your children? Don't you get to name your pets? All right, little kids love to even name their stuffed animals. When you haven't give the animal a name, it shows that you have power over the animal, that you're in charge of the animal. Again, not to misuse them, but to take care of them, to provide for them, to have them become this good thing in the earth. So God creates this beautiful paradise. He creates all the animals. Man gives them names to show that he's in charge of all these animals. And then he comes to this idea of making an equal for man. And he takes the rib of the man, his side. That doesn't take part of his head. It doesn't take part of his feet. But woman is equal to man. So God, again in the story, very patriarchal times, man and woman are equal. She's his partner. She's equal to him. She's something one he can get to know. And we're told they're both naked. Now, if you look at the two stories together, so far we're at vegetarians, and so far we run around naked when we're with God. So they're creating this ideal paradise setting of where God and humans are going to interact. What happens? Well, we get the snake idea shows up. And the snake is not an idea that comes out of nothingness. The snake 
is an idea that comes from different, again, legends and myths written way before the scripture uh, have been written. So the snake arrives on the scene, and it's a very interesting scene. We have a snake that stands up, doesn't crawl on its belly, you'll see that in a second, and speaks, and he first goes and he speaks to the woman. And he says to her, what are you allowed to eat here? What, what can you do here in the garden? She says, we can eat of any tree we want, but we can't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she said, why can't you? Because God said we can't. So this has something to do with obedience to God and non-obedience, but it also has some other implications. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is not just that you know what good and evil is, because we know what's good and evil because in some way we're connected to God, who helps us understand what is good and evil. But what does the woman want and what does the man want when they eat of the tree? They want to be the ones who decide this is good and this is evil. You might say, it's not good to kill somebody. But if you eat of the tree, you can say, well, it's not good to kill somebody unless they're uh, somebody I need out of the way so my family can make a lot of money. It's, it's all right to kill somebody if they're hindering me in getting all of this woman that I want. You get to make up your mind what is good and what is evil. Instead of, in the story, God is the one that is going to help us decide what is it to be good and what is it to be evil. So the snake in the story talks to the woman. She then talks to the man, and they both eat of the, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Nowhere does it say it's an apple tree, all right? That's a whole nother legend, myth that grew up on this lump we have in our throats called the Adam's apple. It was a story. It was a myth that became after the Bible. And we notice that in the story in the Bible, after the people eat the fruit of the tree, they sew together fig leaves because they know that they are naked. So they've come to some ideas. Their, their, their minds are growing. Their ideas are growing. And they now they realize maybe we shouldn't be running around naked. And they sew fig leaves together. If anything, you might say maybe the tree in the garden was a fig tree that they ate. But again, it's a story. What is the point of the story? That's what we're coming to. First of all, that men and women don't get to decide this is good and this is evil. We don't get to make up that part. We have to understand what is good and evil from something a bit outside of ourselves. The snake, when he is confronted uh, by the woman, she blames the snake for having her eat the fruit. The man blames the woman for him eating the fruit. You notice that when you do evil, you always want to blame somebody else. So the man and the women are blaming the snake, and the snake is punished. And in the story, uh, it says the snake now is going to crawl on his belly, and it's going to just eat dust for the rest of its life. Well, snakes sometimes are seen to be just crawling on their belly, 
You very seldom see what a snake eats, except if you now have these great photographers who are able to go in a snake's den and see them eat and then go hide away as they digest their food. But in the old days, snakes, snakes were thought upon as something that just slithered around the ground and ate the dust. All right. Then what happens in the story? Adam and Eve are put out of the garden. All right. Because why? Because they, A, disobeyed God, and because they want to decide what is good and what is evil and not listen to God. And the part of the story is that women have childbirth. It's going to be hard. Men are going to work. It's going to be hard as they till the land. It's a way of explaining why things are the way they are in the world in 975 and 935 BC. When Adam and Eve, or we don't really have their names yet, as you notice, but when we have man and woman put out of the garden, all right, they're told that they can't eat of another tree, the tree of life. Now, up until that point, it seems that they could eat from the tree of life. And what is the tree of life? In the story, it represents immortality, the idea that we will live forever. And it's something that's very basic a, a bit to human beings. We think we should live forever. We have a hard time imagining the world before we were born, and we have a hard time imagining the world after we're gone. This idea that people would like to be immortal was a very ancient idea. And it's found in many, many other mythical stories. One of those stories was called The Legend of Adapa. It was written in the 14th century BC, hundreds and thousands of years before the story of Genesis. In that story, in The Legend of Adapa, all right, there is this idea of man being able to be immortal by eating with the gods, that the gods give man some bread and water of life, and if he ate it, in the legend of Adapa, he could live forever. A second story, even older than the legend of Adapa, written somewhere around 2100 BC, 2100 BC, all right, again, very much older than this Genesis story, talks about a guy named Gilgamesh, and it's called the Gilgamesh Epic, all right? And in the Gilgamesh Epic, one of the leaders of the story is told that he can live forever. And he's given a twig from a special plant which will allow him to renew his youth for as long as he has the plant. Well, he mistakenly puts the plant down goes for a swim, as it tells us in this myth, in this legend, goes for a swim, and a snake comes around and eats the uh, twig. Well, when he eats the twig, it was thought that a snake, in fact, has become immortal. Because one of the things you can find if you are hunting around where snakes live is you can find snake skins where they grow, they literally grow out of their skin and they leave their skin behind. A lot of people thought that meant a bit that the 
skin of the animal shows that it was immortal, that snakes keep living and living and living. You almost never see them dead. This idea of immortality is very strong in humans. And this idea, the tree of life, is again very strong in us. We like to think we would live forever. But sadly, we realize we won't live forever, that we do die, that we go to this other realm, many people believe, where we might be with this Godhead, this being who keeps us in existence. The story, the second story of creation is about learning that A, we are not immortal, B, that we lose the Eden, we lose this paradise, and now we have to live in the world, and it's going to be a little tough. And yet, you know, God gives men skins. Instead of fig leaves, he gives them skins of animals. So now man is allowed to kill animals and is allowed to eat animals in the second story. And that's about where the first part of the second story ends, that man and women are out, they're on their own, and then we're going to come to the story of Cain and Abel. Tune in next time. Sorry about that. I didn't really mean to sign off because I do have one other story I want to share with you. As I told you, I was in the Merch Marine and used to do a lot of traveling with them that summer. But later on, I got to travel on uh, very nice uh, boats, huge ships, cruise ships that went around the world. And one of the places that I really got excited about visiting was the place of Ephesus. Ephesus is uh, an ancient city, run, was run by the Romans. And what happened was it was, run, it was built down uh, a river and a gorgeous city was built there, but the river started to get silted in and they couldn't get everything out of the city before they had to leave it. What Romans used to do, if they built something, great, great buildings and great uh, pillars and great museums and great uh, temples, they would often bring their stuff with them when they went to another place. But the rivers silted in so fast they couldn't move the stuff out of Ephesus. So it is one of the most beautifully restored ancient ruins in the world. And I recommend you see it at some point. The first time I went there, they made it sound like Turkey was having a lot of problems. And that's where Ephesus is. And it was too dangerous to go out from the ship to the site by ourselves. So we went out and we were touring Ephesus. And you start at the high point and work your way down. If you go to Ephesus, start at the higher entrance point and walk downhill. It's much simpler than going uphill. Second, don't go with a tour group. This guy ran us through Ephesus in about 45 minutes. There was so much to see and look at and explore that he just kept pushing us along. And I keep saying to him, could you wait a minute? Could you explain this? Could you? And he's getting more and more annoyed at me because he's trying to keep all these people moving. I couldn't figure out what's his rush. We have all afternoon for this. Well, he wanted to get us back on the bus to bring us to his rug seller deal. And at the rug cell, we had all the time in the world 
just been buying rugs. And I realized, oh, this is why he kept pushing us. So if you go to Ephesus, go out by taxi cab, find another couple, really cheap. Go out by taxi cab, go to the higher part of Ephesus, and take between two and three hours easily to walk your way through Ephesus. Why did this come to mind? Well, in Ephesus, there is a great temple to Artemis. Artemis was a Greek goddess. In the Greek idea, she was the daughter of Zeus, and she was in charge of the hunt and wilderness and wild animals. When the Romans took over Artemis, they transformed her. They changed a bit what she was. And they called her, they gave her instead of the name Artemis, they called her Diana. And in the temple in Ephesus, Diana is pictured as the goddess of fertility. She's sown with multiple breasts and a lot of eggs to show a great deal of fertility. And this is what happens a lot in stories. Myths get created, myths get changed. The legend of Adapa changes, the Gilgamesh epic changes, and in scripture, they use stories though to get across certain points that they feel they want to make. So in the second story of creation, the snake, which we also saw in the Gilgamesh epic, is the evil one. The snake also is very evil personage or a symbol of evil to the Jews because the snake was used in Baal worship, B-A-A-L. And this was one of the worships that the Jews were against. And it was a worship of fertility. And a lot of the men, Jewish men, liked to go to the Baal temples because there they had temple prostitutes. What a great way to worship. So the snake, even in this story, takes on a little bit of the image of Baal as this thing of evil, which you should stay away from. So next time.